Hi, I'm David Green, and welcome to episode one of season 24 of the Digital HR Leaders podcast. Today, I'm talking to Jennifer Moss, award-winning author and co-founder of Plasticity Lab, a data-based research consulting company focused on employee happiness. And I wasn't really that great at knowing when to stop, when to slow down. I wasn't recognizing that my relationships were suffering, that I was feeling all of this guilt of not being able to do, you know, things at 100% because I was so pulled across all these different obligations and expectations. And so I have this schematic and I and it's how I prioritize my life. And I look at every decision I make as being, is it a deathbed regret? And so we need to start thinking about the bigger picture. We get pretty myopic in the moment, everything's urgent and pulling back and realizing, you know, if you have this sort of big picture mindset about it, it really helps you to frame what is important and that life satisfaction is really the most important thing over job satisfaction. Along with her quote-unquote deathbed regret schematic, having recently published a book called The Burnout Epidemic, Jennifer and I will discuss her top tips into recognising and tackling burnout to improve well-being at the employee, team and organisation level. Our conversation will also cover interesting data insights the pandemic has triggered on employee burnout and the strategies that people leaders can take to keep employees happy and healthy, such as building burnout-proof reward and recognition strategies, as well as implementing hiring initiatives to create a culture of burnout prevention. So without further ado, I'm delighted to welcome to the podcast, Jennifer Moss. Today, I'm delighted to welcome Jennifer Moss, workplace expert, international public speaker, and author of The Burnout Epidemic to the Digital HR Leaders podcast. Jennifer, it's great to have you on the show. Can we start by just if you can provide listeners with a brief introduction to to, to you and your work? Yes, definitely. So, um, you know, worked in workplace culture and wellness for quite a long time now. Actually, it's been over a decade, but previous to that, I was working in communications and as a journalist um, and focused actually in uh, workplace issues sort of long before I got into this concept of data-driven insights around workplace well-being. And what I was originally working on was uh, providing happiness strategies to companies like Lululemon and really working in this space where these organizations were already optimized and we were helping them with their well-being programs to you know, further um, help high performers high perform. And through my own experience, I started to realize that there was lots of organizations that weren't even, you know, handling the hygiene properly. And so we were really just focusing on individualizing the responsibility of chronic stress and sort of this toxic positivity was the was the way we were solving or, or trying to solve for it badly for people that couldn't be optimized because they were sick. And that became my goal was to try to think about where organizations play a role and how institutional stress actually prevents people from being well and happy. And until we solve for that, then we'll never actually solve for burnout, you know, in its entirety ever. Burnout is a topic that is on the minds of a lot of our listeners and a lot of the organizations that that we work with at Insight 222. 
But we're also here to talk about being happy, both at, both at work and in the rest of our lives. But happiness is a big word. You know, what do you mean yes. when, when you use it? Well, and, and here's the thing. The goal is to help people find their happiness. It's just understanding that there's a continuum, right? And so you know, I joke that I was a happiness expert and now an unhappiness expert, but that's <laughs> that's actually, you know, you know, just tongue in cheek because we have to make sure that everybody along the way is being supported. And when we really look at what are our goals as individuals, you know, work should give us fuel. It should make us feel joy. And I know I love my job. And yeah, there's times where I'm at risk of burnout because my passion moves from obsessive and, and harmonious sort of back and forth at times. And I'm maybe not great at self-care at moments where I'm really focused on the work. And so that happens to all of us, but it should in general be a good part, you know, a healthy part of our lives. And so thinking about work and happiness and life satisfaction and all those things together, we have to understand we don't bifurcate between nine to five anymore. And so how do we make sure that those two things work together so that we have this joy from work, but then we also have this healthy personal life that's going to help support that, you know, goal of being happy. So, so as managers, you know, hopefully all managers, we naturally want happy employees and happy teams, but how do you convince people that you've got more to offer than simple well-meaning meaning advice? You know, what's the science behind your approach? Well, it's it's interesting because you know, I started a lot of the research, it was based on the neurosciences of happiness and, and neuroplasticity playing a role, this sort of intentional daily effort. It isn't supposed to be one big programmatic solution or a silver bullet, you know, tech solution that's going to make us all happy. It really has to be a about a mindset shift, an incremental change. And I often refer organizations and compare them as being the same way of working and organizing. We're constantly reorganizing our neural wiring to adapt to change and firms are the same way. And the more that we focus on a certain habit, the more likely it is to be part of our subconscious or our culture inside of organizations. So it's, it's small, tiny, intentional daily efforts. And that actually is really hard to do. It's really really hard to constantly be checking and rechecking. Am I doing the things that are going to lead to, you know, wellness? And it often starts with the simple um, yet hard to develop skill. That's empathy. If we really focus on leaning into to what people are saying, actively listening to them, and then responding to what they're saying through actions and, and changes and thinking that it isn't about a, a big sweeping change, but it's about connecting with people on their level and actually using that golden rule 2.0, which is do unto others as they would have done unto themselves. These tiny changes over time, that is what creates a culture that survives and is sustainable. Um, it's not what we do in a year, some sort of value shift that's ever going to make a real dent into increasing happiness at work. Yeah, as you said, it's a, that if we can change behaviors, and then there's enough evidence out there that suggests that if, if employees are happy, you get better engagement, better retention, better performance. So it's definitely in, in managers' interest to try and foster that that culture, isn't it? And, and, and really try and drive that within their team. Yeah, all the data continues to point to it's a good business case. You know, what it was a nice to have in a lot of different organizations pre-pandemic and now because of the attrition 
because of this great resignation and the amount of people saying that they're not leaving because of pay, but they're leaving because of lack of empathy from their, you know, from their boss or that they just had unsustainable workloads or these root causes of burnout is, are the reasons they're leaving. You know, we are seeing it as a bottom line issue. So it's not just that we have to do it because it increases revenue and shareholder value. And we've seen it increase MPS. I mean, we've tracked all the metrics through these interventions interventions around well-being, but it is also now that we have to stop the bleed of people leaving our organizations. And if we don't do that, you know, in as HR leaders and as and as senior leaders, we are going to really feel the the economic impact from that. And you joked earlier that you you'd kind of move from talking about happiness to talking about unhappiness. And obviously, <laughs> you know, a lot of that covered in the in in the burnout yeah. epidemic. Why are we as workers, as managers and as people so bad at knowing our limits? We we aren't great at it, are we? I mean, <laughs> there's institutional stress. There's some a lot of things that are not in our control, but there are things there are areas within our life that we can control and within our work. And, and, you know, I sort of, I've gone through this myself and as a co-founder of a tech company, there was a lot of pressures, especially as a female founder. And I went through this process of burning out and which also led me to want to write this book on burnout and research it, et cetera. But what I came to realize is that I had a lot of control over that happening. And, and I wasn't really that great at knowing when to stop, when to slow down, what I wasn't recognizing that my relationships were suffering, that I was feeling all of this guilt of not being able to do, you know, things at a hundred percent because I was so, I was so pulled across all these different obligations and expectations. And so now I, I have this schematic and I and it's how I prioritize my life. And I look at every decision I make as being, uh, you know, based on this criteria of is it a deathbed regret? And, you know, it sounds morbid, but I think about, well, if I say no to this project, it's not really in my bailiwick. It's not something that I'm really strong in, but, oh, I FOMO. I want to, you know, attach myself to that project, which I did a lot before. Now I say, okay, no, I can't, I can't do that because it might inhibit time that I'm going to have with my family and talking with them over dinner, or I'm going to be traveling more. I'm not going to be with them. And so I start to think, well, in that perspective, what will be a bigger deathbed regret? You know, this project that I say no to or not having strong relationships with my family. And so we need to start thinking about the bigger picture. We get pretty myopic in the moment. Everything's urgent and pulling back and realizing if you have this sort of big picture mindset about it, it really helps you to frame what is important and that life satisfaction is really the most important thing over job satisfaction. And I don't know if you've, you've, you've studied this, Jennifer, but if, uh, if I'm a leader or a manager and and I actually start to pay more attention to my own risk of burnout by extension. And am I then more prone to actually thinking about my team as well? Absolutely. I mean, the most important way that we can actually prevent burnout is if managers are modeling the behavior. There's no way that employees can can be what they can't see. You know, if you have an invisible pressure to answer emails on the weekends and evenings and on vacation because your boss does it, even though your boss is saying you don't need to do it, but I'm just going to do it, then there's no way that that's going to ever change. So leaders have to model it for their employees. But then once they go through the process, and I've seen this throughout my research and activation inside of organizations, when managers start to realize that 
there's still high levels of productivity. They, everyone's still getting their work done, including yourself. Um, you're just more efficient. You're more respectful of how much you're collaborating and meeting and you're not wasting time. You find that you can get your work done in a reasonable and sustainable amount of hours. And then what happens then is you're modeling behavior and you're feeling the benefits and then your employees are as well. And that is what I think is the only way that we're going to break the legacy of a burnout is if we're all acting in the same way, leading to the same goals. When we come back in just a moment, Jennifer delves into the most common causes of burnout, the impact the pandemic has had on employees regarding burnout, and finding the Goldilocks zone of hybrid working. Support for this podcast is brought to you by Equate. The most important resource for any company is its people. However, in today's rapidly changing economy, employees are the first to suffer when companies are not prepared for change. While companies may invest into transformation programs, many still do not have the right people with the necessary skills for the current workplace, let alone what may be required in the next three years. Equate helps bridge that gap by connecting people with purpose through strategic workforce planning. With the Equate platform, you can leverage the talent you already have to create a blueprint for success and achieve your business goals. Take charge of your smarter workforce decisions and visit equate.ai today. That's eq8.ai. Welcome back to this episode of the Digital HR Leaders podcast and my conversation with Jennifer Moss, author of The Burnout Epidemic. Jennifer, could you walk us through some of the most common causes of burnout? You know, what are the major things we need to to look out for in ourselves, those we work with, those we manage? Yeah, so it, it was really important in, in you know in 2019 where the World Health Organization actually identified burnout as institutional stress. It's occupational stress left unmanaged. And for those that are leaders and HR leaders who are looking to create policy around it, it gave some guidelines because before, you know, burnout was kind of considered nebulous. It wasn't anything that we were treating seriously. And that was a big problem, except in Sweden. Sweden was treating it seriously there. And there was pharmacological and therapeutics related to this issue. But when the World Health Organization um, identified it as um, as this occupational stress and it's included in their international classification of diseases, what they found is, again, not a medical condition, but a syndrome of stress that shows up in these three major signs. And you'll see this in levels of depletion. So we're exhausted at the end of the day. We're having a really hard time getting motivated in the morning. A lot of people talked about that feeling of um, just like almost feet in cement. They couldn't get to the shower. Actually, interesting data, showers are down in 2021 by 30%, which is an interesting data point. I think we're, we've lost sort of hygiene and routine. And, and a lot of that is because we're burned out. We're chronically stressed. And then too, we see this in like, you know, drinking more coffee or having to relax the, in the evening, we see alcohol sales, you know, go up dramatically. All of this is again, signs of burnout. And then we see this too, in this emotional distance from our job. So we used to feel really good 
good at what we do. And now we're so overworked. We feel this lack of efficacy, you know, like we're not valued. Uh, we don't have purpose. We're not inspired. We saw that a lot in healthcare, teaching, you know, tech companies are all of a sudden this remote work and they're working three hours more per day because they're always on. All of this makes us feel less effective. And then the third way that it shows up is cynicism. So this high level of negativism towards our job and using fixed mindset language like always and never. It's always going to be like this. It's never going to change. A lot of I, you know, it's it's very myopic. It's my problem. Um, and I can't do anything about it. So a sense of hopelessness. So these three signs are really something that we need to, I see in ourselves if we're thinking that we may be burning out, but also we tend to misdiagnose our coworkers or our colleagues or even our subordinates as being underperforming when they are likely chronically stressed because it shows up in presenteeism and absenteeism, more sick days, more mistakes, irritability, you know, just not a great coworker, you know, they're not as friendly. And more than likely, um, in most cases, that person is actually experiencing symptoms of burnout. And that's what's contributing to their, you know, issues in their performance at work. I mean, so if, if you've got a, what was previously a high performer who's not performing so well, then check for burnout. Check for burnout because, you know, you had this passionate person that was really great. They were friendly and excited and passionate and and driven and performing really well. All of their sales goals were being met or exceeded, you know, and then all of a sudden they're just they just hate their job and, you know, they're acting out. It, that's probably not the case. We have to look at all the underlying reasons why someone could get to that point. And, and when you're exhausted and you're overworked and you're feeling a lack of agency, all of a sudden you're being asked to answer emails at 11 o'clock at night and solve problems the next morning by eight. I mean, you're going to feel uh, a little disillusioned with your job and you maybe you're not going to perform at that same level. So those are the kind of things that we need to start taking a moment in, in HR and in leadership and, and taking a pause and then asking, how did this person get to this point? Which leads on nicely to the last couple of years or two and a bit years, the pandemic. So much of what we previous stability up in the air, you mentioned that that data point about showers going down in 2021 <laughs> as an example. I love that data you know, point. <laughs> what are you... <laughs> What are you hearing from HR professionals or, or business leaders about the impacts it's had on employees regarding burnout? You know, has that word taken on a new meaning in the in the last two years, for example? I definitely see that shifting. I mean, when you look at the fact that we had 4% of people identified as remote workers, and then suddenly it's 26%, and that looks like it's not going to change. There's an expectation that number is going to rise. So there was a response right there and just creating more flexibility. But we're also, you know, noticing that people are leaving their companies. And so, like I said, that attrition piece is getting a lot of leadership to wake up to the issue. Um, I think too, I mean, you can't ignore the fact that we're looking at, at numbers of 80 to 90% of people across the global workforce saying that they're feeling chronically stressed or burned out. 41% of the global workforce is saying they're planning to leave their job in three months, according to Microsoft's trends report. I mean, there's reasons for that. And we see it a lot in, in things like the pandemic creating this over-collaboration and this meeting fatigue. Meetings went up 258%. That's how many more meetings we're having every single day. I mean, it's just astronomical how much we're connecting and using Zoom and we're, we're just exhausted. And I think there's no way to ignore that. 
and it is impacting even just disability claims. We're watching more people taking time off because of chronic stress and, and for solid length of time, that's going to impact the bottom line there too. So what's happening is that there has been a response. There has been a necessary response because it's a, for business reasons, but just in general, a lot of leaders and human centered leaders and HR leaders that really care about their people, which most do, they, they are, I mean, we, bosses get a bad rap and, you know, organizations as a whole might get a bad rap, but individual leaders really do care. And, and what I've seen in many cases about their people and they want to see change. And sometimes when you swing the pendulum really far in one direction, like this crisis has forced us to do, you have this opportunity to, to realize some things that maybe you've been wanting to to make change and you haven't had the buy-in. And that's one of the things I keep hearing from HR leaders when it comes to their senior you know, executives that they're finally getting buy-in for the things that they wanted to be able to do around mental health and well-being. One of the things we've seen more so is that mental health is being treated differently. There's more teletherapy options, even just the acceptance and usage of teletherapy is, has gone through the roof. So we're accessing that more. Um, we're looking at more upstream interventions. So it's less about the perks. It's more about how do I, you know, get mental health first aid inside my organizations? How do I train up ambassadors so that they can be highlighted as people that can support? So you are seeing the shift in response to burnout and it being treated much more seriously by having these upstream interventions versus downstream tactics. Yeah, it's, in, it's interesting. I, I, I don't know if you saw the, the research that, that Microsoft published recently about they, they've seen that there's a triple peak now as well they did productivity used to be better apparently just before lunch just after lunch and they've seen a new peak now around eight nine o'clock in the evening when people were getting on i guess responding to a lot of messages now whether that's healthy of course is is is, is another thing and obviously a lot of the companies we work with and i'm sure the companies that you you work with jennifer you know they've got people analytics teams they've been paying a lot of attention to how employees are feeling at the various stages of the pandemic many are shaping their approaches to hybrid work based around employee preference Looking ahead to some of the challenges and opportunities of hybrid working, what challenges and, and opportunities do you see? I think one opportunity you've said there is that opportunity to almost reset, but but what else are you seeing or thinking about as as the hybrid work era potentially or hopefully comes through? You know, it, there's pros and cons to this, um, this shift. And at, like I said, you swing it in really far in one direction. You do have to find a way back to that Goldilocks zone or else it's just it's a different problem, you know, that you're dealing with and loneliness and isolation is a, is a big factor and lack of community is one of the root causes of burnout. And, and, you know, I was writing this book before the pandemic and I was fighting for flexibility and remote access. And we need to get, you know, more companies feeling okay about remote workers. And then, you know, March 13th happened and 300 million people went remote and, and there's been, but, you know, different feelings about this. And so I think we need to figure out how do we have relationships and really, you know, healthy relationships in this post-pandemic experience of hybrid work. And we need to be able to still see people in person. The idea that we can only be remote, for me, I feel like that isn't the healthiest approach. I think that we still need to have some way of connecting with each other in person. It doesn't need to be some declaration of two days a week or three days a week or one day a week. It can be that we, you know, connect for three weeks and onboard 
board. And then, you know, and then it's sort of a top up of connecting every six months or whatever that looks like for your organization. And the idea that we are just going to atrophy those mirror neurons that we share with each other, that that nonverbal communication, the serendipitous moments that that can be fully replaced virtually is is scientifically proven to be likely not to be able to be realized. And like, for example, really great research at a Stanford Media Lab. And Dr. Jeremy Balenson was looking at Zoom burnout, for example. One of the reasons why there's Zoom burnout is that the only time we would be this close up to someone face to face in real life would be if we were mating them or fighting them. And so we have this, what he says is this hyper aroused state subconsciously all day long. And that's why we're feeling so tired. It also, we're, we're so much more self-discriminatory. We're looking at our faces all the time, which is not healthy. We need to be in person and looking each other actually in the eyes to develop trust because that's how we needed to survive on the savannas. There's a lot of things that cannot be replaced. And so I'm not saying again, people will be shouting, don't, you know, I don't want to go back to work because I'm comfortable, you know, in my, in my home. I, I don't think that needs to be taken away. It just needs, we need to figure out how to come together and then use technology to augment relationships versus replace them. And I guess it's going to be so important to collect the data, listen to employees, be prepared to adapt uh, and iterate. And again, you know, particularly leaders that maybe have a a non-data-based idea of what the workplace should look like. There's so many things that we get when we're together that we don't get when we're we're sitting in our chairs in a in a spare bedroom in the house. You know, if we're lucky to have enough a spare bedroom in the house. So yeah, really, really interesting, very good stuff there. We hope you're enjoying this episode of the Digital HR Leaders Podcast. If you are looking to continue your learning journey, head over to myhrfuture.com and take a look at the My HR Future Academy. It is a learning experience platform supporting HR professionals to become more data-driven, more business-focused, and more experience-led. By taking our short assessment, you will see how you stack up against the HR skills of the future. Then, our recommended learning journeys guide you every step of the way, helping you to close your skills gap, deepen your knowledge, and press play on your career. I hope you're enjoying my conversation with Jennifer Moss. In this final section, we turn our thoughts to Jennifer's advice on building more effective recruitment and rewards and recognition strategies to create a psychologically safe culture that prevents employee burnout. I'd love to ask about the value of reward and recognition on burnout and the evidence that, that often companies get this wrong. You know, how can we help leaders build more effective recognition, feedback and compensation strategies? This is an, an interesting dilemma too, because we are going into a remote and hybrid environment and we might not see people in the same way. And what's been so interesting around relationships is that, you know, in person, you could have relationships with people that weren't based on work. You know, you met lots of different people and you collided with them. But now the only contacts that we connect with each other, if we're only hybrid or if we're remote, is that we are 
only developing those relationships in the context of work, because that's how we start those conversations. And so that's changing how we can expand our relationships with people. But also for those people that are in the office that we're seeing more, there's this fear that maybe they'll get promoted more, that they'll get recognized more for actually physically being there versus those folks that are choosing to be more remote, which creates issues around diversity and and equity. So there's a lot of things that we need to be thinking about as we move into this new paradigm because we might have these biases that we don't even realize are existing. And so we're promoting and compensating and and advancing, recognizing more people that we are able to be proximal to. So it has to be very deliberate. We need very strict guidelines around how we think about promoting and, and rewarding people in the organization. Equity is still very important. We should be doing audits on our pay, making sure there's no pay gaps. That's table stakes stuff. But also it should be that you know, we aren't making it so that there is this debt of working remote if you're offering it. Um, And you need to sort of check yourself as a manager that you're not doing that. I think overall pay has become a different type of, (laughs) it's it's a different kind of beast because before it was so transactional, right? You paid people, they came into work, they did their job, they went home. And that social contract has really changed. And so now pay might include a lot of other benefits. You know, it used to be, you better not be involved in my personal personal life. I don't want my boss involved. Now it's if you're not involved somehow and caring for me, I'll quit. And that means that compensation involves a lot of other things. How strong is your EAP? What kind of mental health benefits do you have? What kind of training do you have around these conversations? What kind of support for my financial well-being are you going to offer? Which is a big part of, you know, not just financial well-being, you're paying me well, but what kind of support tools do you have for me saving? Do you Are you making sure that I have an effective retirement savings plan? Are you going to help me put my kids through university? You know, these are things that it's becoming the whole person that we need to consider in these strategies and not just it's basic pay and some other perks. Um, it's it's much more nuanced. And it's very much about a series of tools that are going to fit a lot of different folks because, again, you have to remove bias. You have to make sure there's inclusion. And that means things that some people might use, you know, others don't. So how do you make sure that everyone has access to the tools that they need to feel like they're being compensated properly and um, and rewarded effectively for the work that they're doing? Yeah. Really, really good point. And for anyone working in the in the field, there's there's a kind of two way process, I guess, constantly going on. HR needs to be able to spot problems emerging, and employees need to be encouraged and enabled to to voice those problems. You know, we need to create the psychologically safe culture that people feel they can speak up. For those two sets of people, what advice do you um, give to, to where you've seen that kind of work well in action? We're seeing psychosocial supports being extremely important within organizations right now, and hit works well if we can give everyone access, which means you have to have anonymous data gathering. You need to be able to give people the ability to provide their insights where you're going to action them. We can't you know, take data and then not do anything with it. That is maybe the worst thing you can do because every time you try to gather data after that, then it's useless because you're not getting what you really need to know from people. Um, also understanding that there's certain demographics that just won't answer surveys. There's different ways 
ways that we need to be able to connect with people and give them that ability to communicate to you without it feeling like you're gathering, you know, personal data that's going to be used somehow or leveraged against them. And that's a lot, you know, when it all boils down, it boils down to trust being developed in the first place. I know I've seen really great examples and I write about one in the book. Hewlett Packard was a great example of, you know, right at the beginning of the pandemic, honestly, about six days a week, they would just have their senior, like C-level executives go into this AMA, ask me anything style of, of conversation and communication with people. They'd give about 15 minutes uh, of detail around just the basics of what was going on within the pandemic and what they were doing in the organization. But then there was a full hour where employees could have put in questions beforehand and asked questions or asked questions in the moment. And there was this access to leadership and their employee trust was really high. So when you then, and they did employee experience scoring and and, uh, trust scores, and they were really high because they felt like they were being listened to. And then you're able to gather way more data from people because they believe that you're going to action it in a useful way. And so that is how you create a lot of safety. And it's also about trust built over time. We can't just expect that someone's going to onboard, especially those that onboarded in the pandemic, they were more disconnected from their colleagues. We're finding still that they don't feel as connected to the values and the mission if they were onboarded after March 2020 versus being onboarded in January 2020. So we're already dealing with this mistrust. So it's about intentional non-work-related check-ins every single week, asking people how they're doing, create some sort of format to make sure you're listening for the language of stress or motivation, and then getting together and asking this question, what can we do for each other to make next week easier? This simple sort of meeting hack, 30 minutes, just finding out how people are feeling. You might get someone that doesn't really answer for six months or eight months. They just say, you know, basic stuff. They're not sharing. But if you're committed to this, and this is something that you do every single week and it's part of developing you know your relationships but also letting down your vulnerability or as a manager you'll see that over time people start to share so again broadly making sure that there's trust but data gathering anonymous data gathering and then every single week consistency and frequency and then access to leadership team for them to be able to be transparent with the entire organization and you bundle that together and it increases psychological safety you know significantly you talked about those onboarding after march 2020 so it you know kind of leads us quite nicely to the the next sort of areas is around recruitment so when it comes to to recruitment you know how should we be thinking about the importance of of hiring individuals with shared values and beliefs with the company uh, that they're joining and, and helping people find purpose in their work from from day one. And, you know, what's the role of leaders and, and, and HR in this? It's interesting. And I love that you asked this question because I've been sort of, you know, writing and, and researching even just for on both sides, you know, what we should be looking for to make sure we're not joining another burnout culture because this whole great regret that we're hearing or the great reshuffle, I mean, why leave something and think that the grass is greener and not actually go to greener grass? I mean, we want to want to make sure that's the case. And within HR, I mean, we want to make sure we're 
creating a culture that is focused on burnout prevention so that people don't feel regret in moving into this other organization because we are dealing with a huge amount of post-traumatic stress disorder from what we're hearing now in self-reported social anxiety is on the rise it was around four to five percent of self-reported people self-reporting a high level of generalized and social anxiety now we're looking at around 36 percent that's significant so hr teams need to understand that they are bringing in sort of a worn out workforce. They are bringing people in that have that have some emotional baggage from the last job that they worked at. And so there is going to be a sensitivity to that. And so we need to be much more uh, aware and, and think about that in onboarding, how we're going to maybe extend onboarding. Maybe it's not going to take as short of a time as you, you had planned before, making sure that people feel really caught up in their skills, making sure that they're fully reasonable sourced. We have to imagine that when you're looking at stats, like 80 to 90% of the workforce being burned out, you're pulling someone in that has been just effectively going through that. So what does that look like? How do you extend a couple more weeks of training? How do you make sure that you have a peer support that's there to help them make it more successful? What about an employee resource group? Should we put people in contact with an employee resource group right away by knowing what it is that, you know, that lights them up and gets them inspired and excites them? So, I mean, there's lots of different tactics for that, but I think the most important part that we need to understand is that we are hiring in burned out people. So, and some people have taken a pause, but some people have not been able to do that for financial reasons. And so what does that also look like? And we also need to be looking at onboarding specifically with the context of females being disproportionately impacted through the pandemic. Um, we can't ignore that. And, and again, it's it's understanding that they were juggling demands. Some still are dealing with that. And that's going to be perpetual issue in any crisis. More what it highlighted the pandemic was that women are just going to take on more unpaid labor. It went from four hours to 15 to 20 hours in the pandemic that they added to their weekly work life. And that's why we're seeing 1988 female labor force participation levels. So if we're bringing those women back, we need to be thinking about what are the spinning plates that they're dealing with and understanding that that changes potentially how we, and again, not to be creating any sort of inequity, but helping to make sure that they're most successful as they come back and re-enter the workforce or they switch into an environment that's supposed to be healthier for them. There's lots for, for HR leaders and, <laughs> and managers to, to consider, I think, isn't it? I think that's, I mean, that's clear. I mean, we're in a different world of work now than we were. <laughs> well, with all the thinking you've done, Jennifer, around, the, around this subject, do you ever find yourself accidentally ignoring your own words of wisdom and is it possible to be constantly atop of your happiness game or, or entirely immune from the prospects of burnout? Um, no, you know, and, and and so I have to tell you that it's it's a it's effort. It, like anything, you know, it, like um, a fitness routine is effort. Even just drinking eight liters of or eight liters, however, eight glasses of water a day, like these these intentional efforts to do healthy things for ourselves, they're not, you know, as easy of a habit to build as, you know, a chip habit or, or, you know, a wine habit that gives us a lot of really great input when we're creating habits that are maybe not healthy for us. So we have to work at it. And, and I think for me too, there were moments writing this book on burnout with heavy irony, you know, in the bedroom, because it was the only place I was able to get quiet, writing a book in the bedroom. And the thing is, is I was, you know, working remote 
long for a long time before the the pandemic and it was a quiet house there was very little distractions and then all of a sudden as a mother of three trying to juggle where we were too we had almost you know 16 to 18 months off of school i mean our kids were home a lot and so i was trying to badly homeschool and write this book on burnout and still do my public speaking and all the other pieces of my work. And there were moments that I felt so burned out, but I do believe in the dialectical theory of opposites. I'm a big fan of that dialectical therapy and this idea that opposites, two things can be true at the same time. Yes. You know, I'm really feeling burned out from being a mom and my dishes seem to just have like their own mind and they just grow spontaneously inside of the sink and I'm unloading and loading the dishwasher like Sisyphus carrying the rock up the mountain. I mean, there were moments where I was just like, I want to pull my hair out. But then there were these other parts where I realized we weren't engaged in a million different things. We didn't have kids in all these places. I wasn't traveling all the time. I was able to spend more time just really focused on the basics and realized a lot about what we were doing didn't really have a a value or a priority in our lives before. So these two things, I think for a lot of us, these theories of opposites were the pandemic in general. And I think we have to think about that, you know, even just Zoom burnout, technology, all of these things that we feel exhausted by, technology did allow us to force this social experiment around whether we could be productive, working flexibly. And I think that in the end is going to be a good thing. Um, You know, we did burn out, but are there more discussions now around burnout than ever before? You know, now we are, we had to deal with major stressors and people quit, but that's changing the lens for leadership that are now activating really good upstream programming. And it's not about diminishing the challenge. It's just about changing the narrative um, so that we can see what are some of the things that were benefits and knowing that it was hard, but what is going to come of it? And the more we do that, the more I think we'll be more, we'll be able to be transformational leaders. And so that has been my experience, I think, is is just constantly reframing and looking at what is the narrative that I'm, that I'm ruminating on and what is the narrative that makes me feel more optimistic. Yeah, I think we need to, we need to be intentional, don't we, about making sure that we are stopping work at certain points and spending time with their families and and, and you know and I, I see companies you know microsoft and uber have both published some of the work that they've done you know yes productivity went up but you know there were times when when well people were reporting that they felt less productive or, or well-being when when they started analyzing the data it was you know one of the big causes was a lack of focus time people were constantly in meetings they're not having that fixed two to three hours a day maybe to, to really get deep work done and we're probably not going to go back to well, we're not going to go back to exactly what it was before March 2020. It's going to be a new again, isn't it? So we again, we we need to experiment. We need to analyze the data. We need to take action. We need to communicate. And we need to be conscious of burnout. And and maybe you're right. Maybe maybe the pandemic, what the pandemic has done, has really elevated the topic of burnout now, and and to to executives who are concerned about it, and they see the negative impact it not just that it has on people, but it has on the business as well. So it's a really interesting. So Jennifer, this is the question that we're asking everyone on this series. And you may end up summarizing some of the stuff that you've already done. You may you may pick something new. You know, what do you believe to be the two to three things that the HR will need to do to really add business value as we hopefully come out of the pandemic? 
I think that you always add value and HR leaders are are extremely valuable. And I see them actually playing an even bigger role right now in, in strategy, in culture, in business. And I think that's a good thing. You know, I think that there's been a shape shift around what that role is. A lot of um, HR teams had to just go right to the front lines and communicate constantly about what was happening. They became the go-to people um, where we gathered our learning and our information and and to feel assuaged of our stresses. And so there's been a high, higher profile, I think, put on those um, folks inside of organizations, and that's a good thing. Um, I think that this is a, an opportunity for anyone in leadership to look at change as being this incredible power that we now have, that we can make those changes we wanted. You know, anytime you've faced your mortality for two years, you're going to feel the effects of that. And I think that what HR leaders are are learning is that that is a very human uh, emotion and people are feeling really Um, shifted in their priorities and what work means to them. And so HR leaders are going to have to adjust to that very nuanced way of supporting people that it's a one-to-one sort of support that I know that has already been um, a concept that has been rallied around for the last few years, but it's going to become even more so because people are not as um, identity connected to work in the same way. They see that there's other priorities that matter because it's been tested. And so how do we bring inspiration back? How do we leverage relationships? How do we make sure that people are still connecting in a way that's meaningful? You know, how do we make sure that people aren't just moving from one place to the next, you know, that they had, they realized they could quit a job after 20 years. And, you know, you see that when someone's tested that, that now they're more likely to leave this current role because they have realized that they can. So attrition is going to continue to be a major issue. And people are realizing that, that they can. I mean, you're seeing major career pivots from teachers to um, to nurses to physicians. People leaving their their massive retirement on the table because they just don't want to do this work anymore. And if you can make that decision, then you can make a decision to move again. So again, it's going to be around retention. Um, as a big issue too. And I think all rooted in empathy, this human-centered leadership um, role that we're going to have to develop and culture around that, around empathy and psychological safety, I think is that next um, big uh, strategy that HR leaders are going to have to start to build into their organizations. Well, thanks so much for being a guest on the Digital HR Leaders podcast, Jennifer. It's a burnout is such an important topic, and and, and as as you said, I, you know, I think it's going to hopefully stay very top top of the agenda within organisations. Please, can you let listeners know how they can stay in touch with you, follow you on social media, find out more about your work? Yes, and I'm and I'm on quite a bit of you know social media. Sometimes I'm sporadic, but LinkedIn is one where I'm sort of always there. And my website is great; it has lots of different um, articles that I've published and blogs. And it's Jennifer Dash, so hyphen Moss dot com, and uh, you can find my social media um, contacts there too. Well, that's that's easy to remember, Jennifer. Thanks again so much for being on the show, and uh, look forward to, to to reading more about your work and in the in the coming years. It was so great chatting with you. Thank you. Those were excellent questions. I had such a joy. Thank you. Thank you for tuning into this episode of the Digital HR Leaders Podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. 
Thank you again to my guest, Jennifer Moss. If you did enjoy listening, please do rate the show with five stars on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and share it with your friends and colleagues via social media. We rely on your feedback and support to keep being able to make the podcast. For more from us at Insight 222, be sure to subscribe to the podcast and you can sign up for our weekly newsletter by going to myhrfuture.com. We'll be back next week for episode two of series 24. Well, I'll be talking to Kevin Wheeler, founder of the Future of Talent Institute, about his new model for recruitment and why investing in recruitment process outsourcing companies and recruitment technology is the future of talent acquisition. Until then, stay safe, stay well, and take care.